It's Monday, January 9th, 2023 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I start 2023 fresh from a trip to the fourth most populous Portuguese-speaking country on the face of the earth. Can you name it? I start questioning my own wisdom. Having ceded the chair to such exalted journalists and newsmen as Ray Suarez, Bob Garfield, and Camille Foster, either I am confident in my own abilities or deluded that you wouldn't notice that those guys are very loquacious. I start with a touch of the COVID, what can you do? But as a man of considerable importance, delayed but undeniable importance, once told us, You know, my father always told me, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. That was Kevin McCarthy, whose dad died of cancer at 58. That's how he finished. What the hell does that prove? It's not how you start. It's not how you finish. It's the choices you make along the way. Kevin McCarthy chose to compromise all the way down. And so on the 15th ballot, he was elected speaker after promising who knows what to any Republican who objected to anything about his candidacy, from his willingness to work with Democrats, to his insufficient loyalty to Trump, to the cut of his jib, to the scope of his job. Yeah, 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 it was in fact all unprecedented since the 1800s. It sure was a sign of weakness. He's in an all but untenable position, having gained power by ceding so much of it. But as Camille said on this show, we are supposed to have a budget delivered on time, and we haven't since 1998. So the speaker fight was not really unique. It was just very noticeable dysfunction, memorialized in 14 sets of distinct failure-type discrete nodes of dysfunction. Congress not acting smoothly or adequately, that's just the atmosphere. All those failed votes were distinct strikes of heat lightning derived from the atmosphere. Woodrow Wilson wasn't nominated for president until the 43rd ballot of the nominating convention, James Garfield on the 36th, and those weren't even the longest. President's a more important position than speaker. Sometimes these things take time. And sometimes the fact that those things take time do portend of chaos to come. I predict we will get our fair share of that. But the one area that I've heard the most concern about is the debt ceiling. I hate the debt ceiling fight. It's a ridiculous tradition where we actually allow someone the option of defaulting on past spending. But the debt ceiling has become a leverage point for the exact kind of nihilist Republican who damned the first 1.166 dozen McCarthy ballots. Here's my analysis and the good news. I don't think the debt ceiling will be held up because I think the dynamics of that upcoming vote are quite different from the dynamics of what we just saw. There are 223 total House Republicans. So the possibility of getting a Democrat to join them in voting for a speaker was nil. McCarthy could only afford to lose five votes to become speaker. But with the debt ceiling, the calculation works in reverse. Assuming all Democrats want to fund it, and not to fund it and cause economic catastrophe, you would need five Republicans to join them as the caucus of the clinically sane. 
I would look to the 28 Republicans in the Problem Solvers Caucus. I would look at the 35 Republicans who voted to found the January 6th Commission. Yeah, a lot of them are gone. Kinziger, Cheney, Herrera, Butler. But over a dozen, maybe 20 still remain. There's Dan Newhouse, David Valadeo, who voted to impeach Trump the second go-around. There's former Air Force General and just guest Don Bacon, who is extremely critical of the McCarthy antagonists. The votes are out there. That's not to say it's easy, just getting the sentiment to the floor, the sentiment that uh, maybe we should honor our past debts. That is a hurdle, and the hurdle has been seemingly raised from high school level to steeplechase level based on what McCarthy gave away and who he placed on the rules committee. And there's an amendment process that's going to be more complicated than it ever was. It'll take a lot of time. But basic, the basic fact is the dynamics of this speaker vote was that the majority of Congress did not want Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. All the Democrats, enough of the Republicans. The dynamics of an upcoming debt ceiling default is that most members of Congress will not want to default on the debt ceiling, and that's really important. So I don't expect to hear the following sentiment expressed the moment it comes up for a vote. That was easy, huh? I never thought we'd get up here. (laughs) But we didn't expect to hear that from the mouth of Kevin McCarthy. And that's whose mouth we heard it from. Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We'll get there. We'll get there with the debt ceiling. But don't worry. There will be a good deal of angst drama and at least a mini C-SPAN ratings bump before we arrive. On the show today, Brazil, where hearts were entertained in June... But then there was a populist swoon, and they ransacked official rooms. But first, Eric Newcomer is a former Bloomberg tech writer who decided to leave traditional media to start a very big tech substack called Newcomer, his last name. And at the time, he was. Now he's a bit established. He also hosts a very entertaining and insightful podcast that I've come to love, Dead Cat. We talk the future of substack versus traditional media and the coverage of crypto. Eric Newcomer up next. So here's my problem with tech. It's not just the sector of the economy. It's so influential. But whenever I want to understand an institution, I turn to the media and usually the traditional media, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, supplemented by podcasts or substacks, I feel informed. I am informed when the institution is the government or the military or the NFL, not with tech. I don't know what it is. Maybe there's antagonism with traditional media when it comes to tech, but I find the catastrophizing so overblown, but I also find just ignorance. I don't know exactly who to trust. Sometimes, you know, words like blockchain get thrown around uh, incessantly without ever really describing it. And then finally, I, I get my head around it a few years ago. I'm like, was that so difficult? I'm a little resentful of how the media covers tech. So I have been searching out media for myself, media that explains it to me and reaches me on my level, which is not to think that we're necessarily living in a dystopia, but of course, not to take every advance as a utopia. Enter 
Eric Newcomer. He worked for Bloomberg. He has a substack called Newcomer. He's an expert on the tech industry. And most importantly, and this is my personal jam, he's the host of a podcast called Dead Cat. Eric Newcomer, welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Give me a little background about your experience, what you covered, where, and how you came to this substack and podcast. I feel like one of the last reporters who really climbed up this sort of traditional internship ladder. I was at the Macon Telegraph two summers. I worked at the Sun Sentinel, the Tampa Bay Times, New York Times. And then I briefly covered DC City Hall and I uh, fell backwards into covering tech. I was the first employee at The Information, which is you know a super insider Silicon Valley publication. I left after like a year and a half and went to Bloomberg where I was there six years. I did a lot of the Uber loses a ton of money. Fall of Travis Kalanick wrote a big Business Week story about him. Also uh, was the first to publish the video of the driver arguing with Travis Kalanick. So very deep on the sort of Uber beat reporter saw sort of the rise of unicorns. A lot of like, oh my God, these startups are so valuable. And then, oh my God, these founders are so crazy. And then right in the heart of the pandemic, you know, when everybody was reassessing their jobs, you know, I, as a startup reporter, I saw Substack sort of on the rise and thought, okay, finally a trend sort of touches my life. I'm not going to let this one pass by. So I quit my job at Bloomberg and started a Substack called Newcomer. Did you leave Bloomberg, which to me, I don't think it was probably about Bloomberg, but about that established world, more out of dissatisfaction with that or more because you saw the possibility of Substack? Uh, I mean, it was a little of both. I definitely felt constrained at Bloomberg. I mean, you know, I would write a weekly newsletter for them and just they were in total denial that there was any sort of opinion in it, even though I was writing it. I'm like, no, there are opinions that I'm allowed to hold and are safe and there are opinions that aren't safe. And like, basically I'm allowed to publish the safe ones. And so I found that super boring and frustrating. And I think they've become more opinionated, you know, responding to the rise of Substack because media is smart and they pay attention. But so, so I was sort of annoyed by that. And Bloomberg is just so conservative. I think being a fairly young reporter, especially one that had come up through sort of a traditional media where so many of my like successful peers on Twitter had been more like, you know, wild sort of, you know, writing a Vox or Gawker or whatever. I needed that sort of like loose period. And so I think going to Substack where I could find my voice was really important to me. What were safe opinions you were allowed to express and what are in general the consensus of those sort of opinions that uh, are being allowed to be expressed by more establishment media these days when it comes to tech? You know, you could debate about sort of content moderation, I think pretty safely. You could sort of talk about misinformation. You know, you could sort of, I don't know, chastise like a, a founder for for something. But, you know, I, 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 don't, I, I didn't think it was like so much like some broad ideological-ish thing. And it was more just... Within sort of the, you know, it's like you're bowling, you know, and you have the bu- the bumpers. It's sort of like within sort of whatever the safe sort of points of view on any issue of the day was and not like be the first person to say Elon should be like fired or, you know, it's it's more to me, it was less ideolog- ideological and more just, you know, we, we want it to be like fair, fairly safe. What's on the outside of those Overton bumpers now within the tech reporting community that you think maybe should be inside, things that people are allowed to say? I I think the story right now is just how much, you know, Elon Musk is dominating 
sort of the conversation, definitely outsize to, you know, Twitter's important, Tesla's important, but there are lots of companies. And, you know, so it's pretty, pretty singular focus on him. And I just think sort of the, the, the frustration and sort of some of the culture war stuff, you know, reporters can't help but get, get dragged into it when, when there's not much to, there's not as much to scoop there necessarily. Mm -hmm. I perceive a default setting to be a sort of nihilism dog sitting in a room with flames in the background. Everything is fine. <laughs> yeah, but we're, the world's ending. It sucks. Like we're miserable. Yeah, right. That's it, what you're allowed to negative. do. Right. That's that's basically the mode of uh, discourse. Hate that word, but that's the mode that you're allowed to trade in. And by your, I mean. You know, I get that. That comes through in much of the New York Times, Washington Post, and certainly a lot of the uh, online coverage of these companies. These guys are rapacious capitalists, and they're looking to, you know, stuff us all down into serfdom. The question to me would be, where does the media actually, like, sit relative to the public, right? I mean, there is a lot, both on the right and left, a lot of public criticism of tech and the wealthy. So the media can be super negative about them, but I do wonder, is it that disconnected from the public or is it disconnected just from sort of the business leaders? Mm -hmm. I wonder that too. I w further wonder, it, it, let's say the media is more negative. There's, you could gauge them against what the public sentiment is, but you could also gauge them on if they're right or wrong. So I'm sure right. that, you know, during the muckraking era, the public didn't necessarily love everything that was being exposed about the slaughterhouses, but they were on the <laughs> right side of history. Well, you know, the New York Times, Kevin Roos, who I like, wrote pretty positively about crypto at various points. He tried to write a positive story about helium, you know, that sort of networking crypto project. So there were definitely attempts um, to surface things that were sort of positive for tech, especially when Web3 was going crazy. And I think those stories look a little embarrassing now because Web3 has come sort of crumbling down and there's almost an argument that it would have been better if they sort of stuck to their skepticism a little bit more. So I do think a big issue here in terms of, okay, forget public opinion, forget tech elites, just like the truth is that there isn't, there hasn't been a new Google, there have, there, you know, there was a new Facebook, Uber was sold as like the generational transforming company. And it's not that it doesn't make a big profit. It's not that valuable. Coinbase's valuation is way down. So maybe you know, I'm we're starting to get excited about this whole generative and uh, artificial intelligence thing. And artificial intelligence could be super exciting, but there is this issue that there hasn't been this great positive technological change in the last five, ten years in the same way that I think there was before that. Speaking of 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 uh, perhaps not liking Congress when they find out how many. Uh, members of Congress took crypto money. Let me ask you this. You, you've used some colorful language to describe crypto. You're not alone here. But should the government be regulating it or banning it? Um, look, I, I, one or the other. I mean, I, I have not, it's not been able to pass the smell test for me. Um, I, I have not been able to find anybody who's been able to explain to me what's there other than synthetics um, and uh, what means nothing. Air. And, and <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and the problem is, is that if we regulate it, and I pointed this out to some of the regulators here a week or two ago, if we regulate it, it, it may give it uh, the ability of people to think it's real. 
I think I think it's uh, you know truth okay. be known my personal thought and I'm not a regulator and I'm not a financial uh, person that does regulation but I see no reason why this stuff should exist when you hear that uh, on a prominent setting a powerful person a senator and one of the top interviewers in the world just contemplating should crypto even exist uh, what does it say to you and what does it say about the coverage of crypto <laughs> Such a huge question. Uh, you know, I was covering crypto in like 2014 and, you know, was fairly skeptical of it. Right. And then the price has surged so much that I wrote a column uh, uh, like maybe a year and a half ago that was basically like, who cares, you know, if they were right for the right reasons? It's so valuable. So many people have made so much money that that it that it matters but now the price is down basically what i'm trying to say is i guess the price has been the main thing that has convinced people that crypto is sort of an important new technology and now that the price is down people are just like fundamentally wondering whether there's any value there and i just don't think crypto so far has proved any real any real use case beyond sort of financial speculation i don't think the government Realistic. I, I mean, obviously, it would be terrible if the U.S. didn't have any crypto innovation. We made it impossible um, to sort of to to be competitive there. But but the actual financial speculation, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's totally reasonable to question whether it's it's valuable. Yes, I read uh, Matt Levine's whole book length treatise on it, and I never invested in it. But I said to myself. This seems to be a tool. Uh, we as innovators in an innovative society should not be against tools. If people want to pay way too much for tools, does that mean the tool is bad? To me, it's like, okay, Theranos was a lie, but does that mean we should ban blood testing? And I do kind of come back to the media's responsibility in explaining what this thing is. Is this thing a rocket ship to wealth? Well, then, yeah, we should watch out for it. But is it a somewhat limited application, interesting tool that interacts with the blockchain, which also is in and of itself interesting and has, uh, you know, some positives for society? I feel like when some of these exchanges collapse, like FTX, um, you know, some of the reaction you'll see on, I forget, one of them filed for bankruptcy. And I think I was reading through I think it was one of the early ones before FTX, and I was reading through some of the letters from consumers, and there was like, like a sentiment that coin, like, I, guys? yeah, yeah. I, I think it was one of the early stable coins, and it was like, I, I invested in this because I don't believe in the government stuff, but I'm shocked that the government would let this happen. You know, that there is like consumers, no matter how separate crypto brands itself from from you know the American government and the financial system, there's a reality that. Regular people just believe that, you know, they're, the, the government wouldn't let them like do something so crazy that they could lose all their money. And, and so there's just a, a baseline level of consumer protection that I think people actually expect. Um, and I, I, if that weren't the case, I'd be more open to like letting crypto do whatever we, it wants. But we saw, you know, Wall Street bets. We saw there's such an appetite just to gamble. And then when everything goes wrong, I do think there's a sentiment from the public that's like, oh, why wasn't anybody there to protect me? And to do that, of course, requires stopping them from making sort of crazy bets in the first place.
And why wasn't the media there? Or should the media have done one of a couple things, exposed uh, Bankman Freed, or just say, this thing doesn't make sense. It never made sense. We're not veering from this truth, and we have to keep communicating this truth, that these prices are just ridiculous. Know that. If you know nothing else, know that. This is where I think media criticism gets insane because media can get it from both sides on crypto. Like on the one hand, if you're a total crypto cynic, the media is enabling this fantasy by Bloomberg's covering the price increases and has a crypto team. And, you know, that's where the media wants to believe that the future will continue to progress, that there are new interesting things. They, on the other hand, of course, every crypto story is like Tether could go bankrupt or like Tether, where's the money? You know, um, and yet still, you know, then the media will get blamed, even though they've written very negative stories about Tether for not like figuring out, you know, the media cannot replace regulators. The media cannot be expected to take down every scam. Like people cannot, if the media is saying there's a lot of smoke here, there's a lot of smoke here, the media doesn't have subpoena power. So I just think it's people's expectation for the power of the New York Times relative to the Justice Department is insane. Like it's the government that's failing to go after these 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 companies, and and the media should, and it's great. But I, I think we should have more of a mindset where we applaud reporters when they get a great scoop, not like we're indignant when some sort of subset of companies and twenty year olds out of college isn't isn't you know uh, unraveling every bad thing in the world that happens. Or I don't know. Do you think the media is obligated? to uncover everything bad thing, every bad thing that happens? They can't. They don't have subpoena power. <laughs> right. That's. I mean, that's it. Like, if they were, why even have regulators? Right. If we had this institution called the Fourth Estate, and then if we did, that would be pretty bad if they were not accountable to anyone elected. Yeah, it's like a nice thing when the media can, like, beat the government, but it's they're they're competing at such a disadvantage given their 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 power that it's sort of absurd to me that I think there can be a standard for the media um that you know they're they're obligated to un uncover every bad thing that happens. On the other hand, obviously reporters were way too positive about FTX and like I feel like have been too slow to pivot on Sam Bankman Freed. So a question about what you do and what you did. On a recent All In podcast, which is the uh, podcast hosted by four tech entrepreneurs, and you recently had one of them, Jason Kalkanis, on as a guest, one of the, they were debating furiously some of the issues we've been talking about. And one of them said, I mean, the media now can't be trusted. What would you rather have, a subscription to the New York Times or curate your own basket of substacks? And everyone agreed. To even ask the question is to answer it. You could want to go with the substacks. Still, and maybe my listeners will be surprised to hear me say this. I totally disagree. I think, okay, maybe not just the New York Times, but give me the New York Times, Bloomberg, and the Wall Street Journal. I think they're far superior than whatever basket of substacks, but you're in that basket of substacks. What would you choose? I, I, I'm a substacker, and I totally agree with you. <laughs> I mean, people totally – sure, the world doesn't hinge on the New York Times, but the world definitely hinges on a combination of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Associated Press, Reuters, Bloomberg. Like I, the, these substacks are are possible because big media companies are producing all the news that substacks can cannibalize, substacks can zig when they zag. But you need these massive. The, the substack is nowhere close to replacing even just the New York Times on its own, let alone that media ecosystem. And and the all-in guys are totally delusional about this. I mean, they tweet out 
favorable media links when they're when they back up their case and then they shit on the media the rest of the time. They're, everything they know, I mean, the vast even for these super insiders, the vast majority of what people know about what's going on in the world comes through media and it comes through the mainstream media. So I, I think it's total self-delusion that they think they could replace it with Substack right now. Is there anything Substack can be doing to make that thesis more plausible? More writers. The problem is, you know, I don't, most Substacks are not doing novel reporting, right? I mean, not as a criticism. Right, I mean, that takes a lot of time. Right. It, <laughs> that takes there, a lot of money. There's reason, you yeah. know, blogging was blogging and now a lot of Substacks write sort of analytical posts. You know, I do a lot of work to try and break financial scoops. You know, I dug in to Palantir, but, you know, breaking news and doing real investigative reporting takes a lot of time and doesn't really meet sort of the metabolism of sort of the Substack pace of output that you really need to sustain so, so yeah, it's just right now, uh, yeah, I don't think we're seeing the Substack model rebuild reported journalism. We're seeing it rebuild a much better, I think, New York Times op-ed section, but I don't think we're seeing it replace sort of the bread and butter reporting of, of the mainstream media. Eric Newcomer is the author of Newcomer about startups and venture capital. It is one of the top performing tech Substacks. His podcast is called... The Dead Cat Show. Thanks so much, Eric. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. And now the spiel. Could you believe those scenes out of Brazil? Of course you could. We had them here. Their summers are winter. Our January 6th is their January 8th. Their Trump is named Bolsonaro. Our Bolsonaro actually was less persuasive in his tweets than the actual Bolsonaro, who wasn't persuasive enough to keep hundreds of his supporters from breaching the Palacio do Planalto, the presidential office buildings, Congress, and the Supreme Court. There are so many similarities between Jair Bolsonaro's lies and Donald Trump's lies, and so many echoes between the American mobs and the mambo mobs. I noticed the rioters in Brasilia wore their national flag as capes and costumes, just like the DC mob did. In the Brazilian riot, this often just meant donning the yellow and green of the national soccer jersey. So as I watched footage, I couldn't help note the numbers on the back of the rioters. Oh, look, it's Ronaldinho throwing a chair against the wall. There's Neymar breaking a plate glass window. This would be the equivalent of the Capitol Hill insurrectionists wearing New England Patriot jerseys to do their rioting. Oh, who's that using the American flag as a spear? Devin McCourty. Oh, look, it's number 12, Tom Brady taking a dump on Nancy Pelosi's desk. But ever since the Monroe Doctrine, the U.S. has tried to spread our values and vision of government to our hemispheric neighbors. By God, we've done it. Only by comparing the January 6th insurrection here to the January 8th ransacking of Brasilia's government buildings there, they're not exactly equivalent. For one thing, the shock of the U.S. Capitol protests was that it was in the U.S. I'm not being myopic. I mean, the U.S. is the world's oldest democracy. It's been marked by a peaceful transition of power since 1797. Brazil has been a democracy since 1985, a little bit before that, before the 60s, but it's not quite the track record. And I'm not saying that the U.S. is better than Brazil because of this. In fact, one of the reasons that 
Brazil was a dictatorship from 64 to 85 was that the United States wanted Brazil to be a dictatorship, supported the dictatorship, but it is a different set of circumstances. Then there is the role of mass protests in each society, and sometimes chaotic protests. This was from 2014. Anger on the streets of Rio at a planned 10% rise in transport fares. Hundreds of people clashed with police in the city's central station. Protesters attacked fare machines and turnstiles, while riot police responded with batons and tear gas. And this was from a year later. More than 50 people have been arrested in Sao Paulo during protests against public transport price rises. About 2,000 turned out in Brazil's largest city and echoes of nationwide protests in 2013. The 2013 protests referenced there were dubbed the Vinegar Revolt because of the vinegar-soaked bandanas protesters used to ward off tear gas. The protests were over fare hikes. A fairly poor country often sees protests over basic staples or mass transit fares. But they also took in the subject of police brutality and millions took to the streets. There were protests over the corruption of then-President Dilma Rousseff, who herself, along with Lula da Silva, cut their teeth protesting the dictatorship in the 70s and 80s. They were jailed and tortured for it, in fact. And while Brazil doesn't have the protest movements of fellow South American countries Chile or Argentina, and while ransacking the capital is different from taking to the streets, it's different from what such a breach means in the U.S., And it's also in keeping with Brazil's status as a place of protest. We in the U.S. were mesmerized by what went on in Brazil, and I hope we were appalled, because the protests reminded us of the United States. But to Brazilians, I'm sure, who are uh, familiar with what went on with the United States, it was certainly reminiscent of that, but it was also reminiscent of protests that happen in their country, though not of this particular flavor, but frequently happen in their country all the time. And the United States fascination was mostly a selfish one, was mostly an egotistical one. At least it came from a place of look at them and what they say about us. I don't remember the Today Show doing segments on the vinegar revolt I think what we were seeing is not so much sympathy for Brazil as much as a kind of American centrism or egomania that makes that story seem so pertinent to Americans. I also think the Brazilians will persevere and they will do so without the existential type questions the U.S. asked itself. In the U.S., our democracy has barely been in question, not since the Civil War, and as I laid out, Brazil's has. And the baseline existence of a Brazilian, whose average person, is simply more fraught. It's more fraught economically, it's more fraught in terms of crime, and they grapple with hardship more forthrightly. The Brazilians, in fact, did arrest many protesters on the spot. The U.S. did not. I think some members of U.S. law enforcement didn't know what to do. Brazil seemed to at least get it straight. Brazil seems to me more resilient to this kind of disturbance, this kind of pathetic disturbance. In a way, the U.S. has had it easy. To live in a society where your democracy is to some extent taken for granted is a success. And for that, you want to be emulated. Of course, it's only logical that an influential society will also be emulated for its failures. And that's it for today's show. 
2023 marks the production ascension of Corey Wara as the GIST producer. Yes, we announced it in 2022, but really, he's hit the ground running in 23. Joel Patterson is, as always, our senior producer. They did a great job with my guest hosts, who I want to thank again, Ray, Camille, and Bob. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions, my fellow traveler. The Gist is presented in conjunction with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And I learned this, I learned this in the fourth most populous Portuguese-speaking country. Um peru, gi peru, du peru doesn't mean anything to a non-Brazilian Portuguese person. But thanks for listening. <laughs>